Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large Podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I hope you're all enjoying reading and listening. Today is another wonderful, hopefully optimistic day in self-isolation. I am very excited because I get to do something today that makes me feel like I've been in this industry for quite a while. I get to return the favor. Uh, I, I have a very special guest today. His name is Jason Marin. He's out of New York City. He is a freelance lighting director, programmer, and a senior lighting designer at Star Group Productions, as well as a producer and host of Casting Light Podcast. I'm very excited to have him because he was my podcasting tree. I want to say it was five years ago. It must have been 2015 where uh, I had reached out to him like, hey, man, what is a podcast? And if you're doing one, I would love to be a part of it. And uh, Jason got to have me as a guest on his podcast. And now today I'm very excited because I get to return the favor. Thank you so much for, for uh, sitting down and chatting with me for today, Jason. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. It's really good to be here. Can you believe that was five years ago? Back, you were a visionary. You were, you were doing podcasts long before podcasts were even uh, well, people well, knew pod- what podcasts were. Podcasts have been a thing since 2006. Let's be clear. But yeah, you know, like, you know, when I, I had the, the I, I, entire idea I had for the podcast was that, you know, we get together and talk on site or when we're having meals and we have these great conversations about like, how did you do that? What did you do? What, how did you get where you are? And I was like, well, if everyone could hear those conversations, then everyone could learn those things. And so that's, you know, and you were a natural choice for the show because of the experiences you'd had. And I'm really glad that you could be on the show back then. And I'm thrilled to be here now. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of things have changed in five years. We have lots to catch up on, that's for sure. Absolutely. Um, I think let's see, five years ago I was still with Fleetwood Mac. Then uh, I think we had talked about uh, Motley Crue. Yes, that's right. And Stevie Nicks, and uh, those are all all in my past, man. Those are all a lot of things have changed. I got. My kids are all grown up now. They're that's amazing. Things have changed. So yeah, lots of things have changed over here too. Here in New York and in general, and you know, I was a I purchased an apartment since then. Congratulations! Uh, that's not you. easy. That's not uh, easy well, there, especially now that making the mortgage a little, little harder than it used to be. <laughs> while we while I have no income. Yeah. Uh, so let's go into it. So what what has changed for you in the last five years? So let's do uh, let's do business wise first. Uh, I know obviously current. Well, back, back then, I think I was I was sitting on Rachel Ray. I was the programmer on Rachel Ray, the yep. daytime TV show, and that's actually how I got my local one card. 
um, I think I, that's right. I was, I, I joined local one at this uh, not long before I bought the apartment. So, you know, that also changed since then. Um, uh, I was with star group productions back then, but, uh, since then I was promoted to the senior position, which is this sort of administration position overlooking lighting for all of four venues they have. And also since I'm a local one member, um, it means I don't, uh, you know, essentially what I do for them is now management. Uh, and so I do all of my programming and stuff on my local one, uh, you know, on local one contracts. And with them, I just handle administration and oversight. Okay. So it sounds like you get to, you have like a, an office job and you still get the, the exciting parts of theater as well. It sounds like well, you got a little bit of best of both there. That's the idea. But I mean, that's sort of in the philosophy there because, you know, we, we had a uh, one lighting designer for each of the venues. And my rule was always, if someone offers you something that's interesting, you should go and take it. And either myself or one of the other lighting designers can fill in for you while you're gone, because you're going to come back with a lot of useful information. You know, part of the reason I think certain things have gone so well for me is because I've worked in television, I've worked in theater, I've worked in special events, uh, I've worked on film and you know, especially when you're doing things that are, that are these events, which have a broadcast component, which also have a full evening concert in them, it helps to have had experience in all of these things to bring them together into the, 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 the thing we're doing. That must for, be very useful for the star group to have somebody with the, uh, the wealth of knowledge that you have in an, in an administrative role. I, I hope so. I mean, you know, for example, uh, Amy Elliott, who is the lighting designer at excuse me, 55 Wall Street, she was supposed to spend all of March in China on a concert tour. And I, you know, I was thrilled because, hey, you're going to come back knowing a bunch of new information. <laughs> and of course, starting sometime in February, it really became clear that that wasn't going to happen. But, you know, it was supposed to. Wow. Yeah, if she would have been uh, traveling around China in, uh, in February, her life would be very different right now. Well, sure. I'm glad that this thing wasn't scheduled for January, you know, back when it was still possible to travel in and do stuff. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's, uh, that's how much has changed. I mean, January isn't, wasn't all that long ago, but Seven it, months. Seems like, it seems like an eternity ago. I know. Yeah, this, this thing seems to expand time and contract time, and it's, it's hard to know. It's hard to know who you are when you're not doing this work because I mean, it just, we, we get so wrapped up in what we do and our identities are so attached to the thing, to the work we do and not doing it. It, it makes, at least it like, it leaves me wondering who I am. Ah, uh, you hit, you hit the nail on the button right there, man. That is, it is tough to know who we are right now. I, I we went from, I went from being Chris Lowe's, designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting and uh, programmer designer for all these different bands to, to, I don't really know. I don't know who I am. I'm still going to redefine who we are. Yeah. Of course. What does that mean for each of us? Well, I, I think a lot of us are still trying to figure that out. Yeah. Uh, do you still go to an office now or are you just uh, sitting well, at personally, home? No. Um, you know, I mean, I was furloughed. Um, there were, there was sort of the, I can't remember if it was March 12th. Like, you know, that was the day that, um, the city said that there were going to be no more gatherings. And so that, you know, that ended every single theatrical production that ended every event that ended basically everything. And so, you know, I just went home that day and then that was that, um, you know, my, uh, the, uh, the, 
parent company of Stargirl Productions essentially is is is, is, is just uh, on uh, hibernation right now, you know, waiting for when we can do events again. And, and anything else that I had on the calendar also went away. So, you know, I had a ACLU show I was supposed to do at the end of uh, end of April for their hundredth anniversary, and a few other things. There was a Netflix thing, uh, and those also went away. So I'm, you know, I'm just home. Wow. Are you the same as me that you just couldn't, you couldn't actually delete those out of your calendar? You just kind of let them pass by or did you actually delete them out of the calendar? Well, I let, I, I let them pass by. I let, you know, I, there was a, there was a large pride event as well that we were supposed to do in, in June. And, you know, when that one came up on the calendar, you know, it was, that one really hurt. But yeah, I left them in the calendar. Me too. I couldn't do it. I couldn't delete them. I couldn't say like, oh, I'm definitely not going to Plaza this year. I'm not going to uh, Pro Lights and Sound. That was tough to just... Well, to a certain extent, it felt good to leave them in because it sort of reminded me that I had things once, I will yeah. have things again. Yep, yep, yep. It's that little token uh, digital code that says, yeah, that, there, there was worth... There was something going on there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you've had some some even major, even more major changes recently. Do you want to get into that? That is also true. Um, the end of March, uh, the beginning of April, both of my wife's parents were taken by COVID-19 within a week of each other. They... Uh, that's tough. She, she, you know, as far as we can tell, based on the symptoms she had, she got a massive viral load uh, maybe 10 days before she started showing symptoms. And it took only three days to get for both of them to both to get so sick that uh, they had they ended up in the hospital. Um, you know, he, he was sort of eternally having some sort of health issue or another, you know, he had, he had transplants and all, all sorts of other things, but she was an incredibly healthy person. And so, you know, when early on there was a lot of this, well, it's only killing people who were already sick. That was kind of infuriating because I mean, you know, she was extraordinarily healthy and to watch how quickly it laid her out was kind of shocking. You know, at the time we all still thought that masks were only for uh, healthcare providers. Right. So people weren't wearing them in March. Um, and it's like, you know, had we known, you know, one thing like, you know, now that we know how much information the government had in January and February and how little it shared with us, it's kind of infuriating to like look back and know that, well, had she known that everyone's supposed to wear a mask and, you know, we tr need to try and social distance and need to keep from being inside, then, you know, maybe she'd have gotten a much lower viral load. Maybe she wouldn't have gotten one at all. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of infuriating. And, um, so, you know, so Ira, uh, my, my wife's father, um, you know, he only lasted a few days in, uh, in the hospital, but Erica really fought and held on for over a week. And I don't know, I don't know if you know, but the, the, the disease has this really horrible thing it does where it'll let you get a little, a little better for like two or three days in a row and then really knock you flat. So that's what happened to her. Like she had three days where she got a little better and then suddenly she was in the ICU. And 
you know, it was weird. Like I was talking to people and they would say things like, oh, have you been able to visit her? And it's no, the hospitals are locked down. You can't go into a hospital and visit a patient. You know, like, are you not paying attention, folks? Like, do you not see what's happening here? You know, there are refrigerated trucks outside of hospitals to hold, to hold bodies. <laughs> you know, like, do you not know what's going on? Yeah, but my friend on Facebook said that this isn't real. So I'm thinking maybe I should listen to him. Yeah, I don't, I don't even know. I'm tired of seeing that. That's I don't sure. even know what to do with that stuff. You know, it's this, you know, Carl Sagan saw it coming back in the 90s. And you know, there was a book called The Demon Haunted World that I read back then. And I thought he was being alarmist yeah. about, about um, you know, sort of anti-scientist, anti-science, anti-expertise. Yeah. And, you know, it turns out he was, uh, he was as right as he was about everything else. That's the one where he criticized the fact that I think it was 60%, over 60% of the United States still believes in angels. Yeah, that's the one. I see you've read it too. Yep. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan. I listen. When Carl Sagan speaks, I kind of like, oh, we should, we should really pay attention there. So, you know, you know, so the last time we saw her parents was on a Zoom call um, a few days before they went into the hospital and because we were just checking in and you know i think my wife got to speak to her mother maybe two minutes a day for a few days while she was in the hospital because she just couldn't catch her breath at all you know she was lying on her stomach you know trying to you know they were trying to do anything they could to keep her to keep her oxygen saturation up and you know she she could barely speak and so when she could get enough together to speak she did but that was very rare and so they actually went right into the ground without us having seen them and so uh the next time we saw we saw them was to was to go out to the cemetery in queens and see the and see their and see their grave sites oh jason that is so tough that's not the way it's supposed to be I, you know I, and, I, oh yeah seriously i get it that's the way it has to be in this case i mean you can't listen man it could have been worse you know i think about the fact that you know it was that that thursday that everything shut down in new york we had gone to see my mother two days before that well i could have brought her the virus i could have killed her i didn't realize it at the time oh man that's a lot to think about that's uh that's a lot to put on yourself uh you know so now it's like you know yes we do occasionally try and go see her but it's you know just stay six feet away and you know she wears her mask and i wear mine and yeah yeah, uh, if there's anybody out there uh, with parents that are around, please uh, give your parents a call, uh, whether it be a Zoom call or, you know, uh, a socially distanced visit or some, yeah, whatever it takes. You, I'm really glad that we at least had the Zoom calls with them that we did because, you know, otherwise it would have been even longer in the past. So it, it it's blindsiding, right? It goes from like, yeah, I'm perfectly fine. I'm invincible. This isn't going to affect me this is going to affect somebody else too well shit i'm now in a i'm in a hospital with a with a tube in my throat right well i mean for me at least it was over the course of that weekend after the city kind of kind of started shutting down that i realized that we seriously needed to change our behavior if we were going to survive this as okay. uh, you know as just as a you know as a as a culture 
that you know we all had to change our behavior at, at a cultural level and on a personal level you know as an individual call to action you know, we all have to do our part we all have to do our thing and, and i realized that over the course of those three days after because i mean on the friday after the shutdown I was still thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to call my contact at four wall. I'm going to go set up a time for me to go into the, into the shop. You know, if I'm not working, I'm going to go and like, you know, get one of, you know, I haven't had a chance to do a whole color calibration on, on the new fixtures yet. Cause I always like to go and record all my color palettes with all the new fixtures, you know, whenever I have a chance, whenever okay. there's new fixtures out. And I was like, oh, I'm going to do that next week. And then over that weekend, I finally realized, no, no, you're not going to go out to New Jersey and do it into a lighting shop, you know, ask guys to come in to hang a bunch of lights on a truss for you so you can work. And no, you're not going to do that. That's a mistake that is potentially enabling the spread of this. Don't yeah. do that. And so, you know, it, it didn't take my in-laws dying for me to comprehend that this was a danger. Right. And it's, it's, it's a little frustrating that there's people who don't get it until they are personally affected. Yeah, I think of the, the Chuck Woolleries of the world. One day it's a hoax, and the next day when it affects you, like, oh, shit, why aren't you guys taking this more seriously? Exactly, exactly. Uh, man. I, I feel like if we had all done our part, we could have actually done it in 15 to 20 days. I feel like we, it was a possibility. To get was- that many people to do the same thing is... is it's almost impossible. Well, with what we now know, I don't know that it would have been a 15 days, but it wouldn't have been what we have. It would have been, we would have been done by now if people, if we had seriously been able to just shut down, really yeah. shut down. Yeah, I, I feel like we had a great plan in place, but nobody, would, without any way to implement it, I don't think anybody felt as motivated as necessary to implement such a, a large oversweeping plan. Yes. Well, because I mean, you know, even, you know, even look at New York, I mean, you know, we, we shut down pretty hard. It's still, we did still didn't shut down as hard as we could have, but we tried, we really tried and it still took more than a month after that for infections to, for infections to spike. Right. You know, so, but conceivably a month after that, we could have been in a good place if everyone had done the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm no, uh, uh, virologist but uh, from what I've read and what I've seen from other countries that are have taken it more seriously it, it was the plan was possible it, yes. was, it was implementable it could have been done yeah you know, uh, now we're opening schools yep yep I uh, don't know uh, what to say <laughs> I God, even as, uh, as adults we couldn't do it and now we're going to ask kids to kids to be responsible and do the right thing. Yeah. I don't know how that's going to, I hate to speculate, but I I don't foresee it going terribly well, but. Well, I would say just, you know, Hey, you know, you know, we're all out of work. Thanks to this. You know, when, when people aren't doing the right thing to, to, to help the, you know, to help stop this, that every time that happens, someone is keeping us from going back to work. Yeah. So let's uh, let's get into what we had decided to talk yeah. about. Is what the things that we can speculate on is what the safety measures are going to look like when it comes time for us as adults to get back to work. And uh, so, like, even once it becomes possible or legal to congregate, then we're going to have to get people to be willing to agree to even congregate 
what sort of safety measures do we have to put in place to get people to feel safe enough to come out and see a show again? One of the good things about being a member of IATSE is that, you know, I know that now there is an epidemiologist on staff at the, at the national, you know, that's good to know. I did not the, know that. The, 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 yes, you're right. The, the plans have to be put in place, but the good news is the plans are going to be put in place on a more, on a larger scale than just comp, than just production by production and company by company. Um, you know, my, my, my wife is the managing director of a, of a theater company in town called New York Classical Theater. And, you know, she was stressing about, well, you know, is it, you know, can we do shows? You know, when can we do shows? What, under what conditions can we do shows? And I said, listen, you're, you hire exclusively equity actors. Equity will tell you. If, you know, if equity signs off, then you can do shows. If equity does not sign off, then you can't do shows. You know, it's, you know, listen to the folks who are creating the standards because, you know, they have an interest in helping their own membership to work, but also helping their own membership to work safely. Right. I suspect that successful jobs in the going forward are all going to start with a hazard analysis. And yes. they are going to, and, and specifically, specifically successful jobs are going to start with that. And they're not going to start with how they used to do things. They're going to start by what do we have to do to make this work now? You know, it's, and then building the show around that. It's not going to be enough to have less people working because the same amount of tasks have to be done. You know, we're going to have to re-engineer to reduce mm -hmm. risk. You know, it's like all that stuff from OSHA. We're going to have to use engineering controls. We're going to have to use administrative controls. Right. To, to, to make sure that these practices are actually done. So and on top this, of yeah, this, just trying to, on top of trying this, to avoid people falling to their death or being smashed by a forklift or something, we also have to be aware of their, uh, their exposure levels. Right. Now. You know, and that's why engineering controls are going to be so important. It's because engineering controls are things that keep individuals from having to make those choices on a moment to moment basis. You know, this, the same way people got over it and started putting harnesses on when they, got into, when they got into scissor lifts and boom lifts, there's going to be other things like that. And, um, you know, compliance is going to be as important or maybe more important than it is to put your harness on when you get into the scissor lift. When I, well, I'm just old enough that I can recall some of the resistance to harnesses. Uh, it even still exists today, even though with overwhelmingly positive results, there's still people like, ah, harnesses. Yeah, can't believe they're going to make us wear. Uh, uh, just put a rope around my uh, belt loops and call that a harness, right? There's still resistance <laughs> to that, you know? And that's a, that's a physical thing that you can see the difference. You can, you can put a dummy in a harness and drop it, and you can see, like, look what happens here. Yeah. With, with a virus, you, there's, no, there's no visual way of convincing somebody like look this is why you have to wear a mask or this is why oh, we I have think to visually there's ways to ex explain what happens now we have plenty of plenty of examples of what happens when you don't when you don't yeah. what you know <laughs> you have to look a little harder but yeah it, it exists uh but i mean things like uh washing your hands like you can't show somebody like see those little uh, green dots right there those are if you put the sanitizer on, you'll kill those green dots and those green dots won't end up in your face that's or in your mouth holes, you know? That's it, true. In that regard, it's kind of an invisible enemy, whereas falling from a truss is, is a very clear representation of a, of a potential hazard. 
you know, it, that's, that's true. And I also think it's going to become, it, it's going to be a lot easier to deal with these sort of things on set and in studio than it is in any situations involving an audience. Because at oh, least on set one. and in studio, you have, you know, you have all these trades who are in, you know, whether it's, you know, A29 or 754 or, you know, uh, you know, what, well, you know, uh, the musicians local, uh, all, you know, that, that there's an, there, there's an organizing body that can, t- you know, that, that can help uh, ensure compliance and, you know, explain to its membership why these things are so important. And once you start adding an audience to things, that changes things. And how do you get audience compliance? You know, um, I think for all that I was kind of horrified that Disney World reopened, I think they've done a pretty good job as far as uh, enforcing audience compliance. I don't know if they're if they're met, but you know, not not oh, all, wow. but not but not all of their theaters are open. You know, they haven't opened all their theaters. They've opened, you know, kinds of attractions where they can put a plexiglass in between waiting lines and things like that. Oh man, that's a whole nother can of worms I hadn't even uh, thought of. Like as an administrator, you can demand compliance from the people that are on your staff because they're dependent on your, you're paying them basically. Like you have to follow these rules if you want this paycheck, but for the audience, you don't have that leverage. In fact, they're paying you. Right. So what's the the leverage you can use? You, you have nothing. Well, in the case of Disney, they have the labor. The leverage is you have to leave if you if you aren't complying. Oh man! But that requires a lot of um, a lot of staff. You know they yeah. are you know, because they're such a high touch business. They're used to having tons and tons and tons of audience interactions whenever right. they're you know whenever whenever people are in the park. So that's you know it, it sort of became just another thing they have to do on top of like you know, if someone drops a thing, sweep it up and put it in the trash can or, you know, in, in, or, Hey, the thing you're looking for is over there. And then don't forget to point with two fingers. Uh huh. Yes. Yeah, so I, I would imagine eventually you get, you have more staff uh, enforcing compliance and cleaning for fewer guest members. Right. And so for non-commercial for non-profit, I could see this working in this sort of way where it's like, well, you know, we have a certain amount of, we sort of have a certain budget for 2020 to do outdoor shows or whatever. Uh, we just need to reallocate how we're going to spend it. You know, whether that's on creating little raised pods for groups of, you know, groups that came together, groups that are already in their own quarantine pod to come see a show. Uh, that's fine. We'll just have less people, but for commercial productions or, you know, for, or for, uh, special events that are done for for commercial purposes that's a very different thing you know that means that they have to find the money in the tickets and in the merch sales and in the whatever you know in the in the sponsorships uh-huh. to, to make up the difference yeah we're gonna have to completely reinvent our business model because our the business model in theater and especially New York City is based on a hundred percent occupancy yes. Uh, Broadway and off-Broadway don't function without a hundred percent, and even I think I well, want to say they're a for hundred and one percent occupancy. A certain amount of off-Broadway is nonprofit, and you know I think that uh, you know nonprofits are going to are going to be able to find ways to you know once the rules are are well established, they might have a better shot at actually being able to do shows under those rules. Um, 
I think commercially, it, it's hard to imagine any new shows coming into existence or any shows that are currently up running um, anytime soon. But, right. you know, I, I could see, you know, like over the summer, um, over the past summer, I was the festival programmer on a show called In Residence at the Lundfontan Theater, which was like eight different one week, two week, three week long concerts from different artists. Like it started with Morrissey, you know, and then we had a couple, and then we had like two weeks of Dave Chappelle and we had Regina Spector. And so costs wise, I can't speak from the artist side, but from the production side, costs were lower than a standard um, Broadway production because there wasn't a ton, there wasn't a ton of automation, you know, but primarily it was just lighting. It was lighting okay. and audio. And you know, so the so the running crews weren't weren't too large, and changeover crews weren't too large. Um, so conceivably, you could see shows like that that cost less to produce, but then are people going to be willing to spend the the hundreds of dollars that you see for ticket prices? Right. Yeah, a lot of that money goes towards production value, and if you don't get it, you're going to feel like you're missing something. I... Yeah, art in the park doesn't bring in the same as Spider-Man in the in the theater, you know. Yeah, yeah. Or in the case of you know, uh, you know, there was a run we had with Yanni, which was very very stripped down. It was, um, I think it was just you know him and a piano and some lighting, you know, not his huge you know international productions with the you know, eighty musicians and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's not an artist of that stature, are they going to be willing to spend that money to come into a Broadway theater? That's going to make it really tough for the people trying to, to innovate right now. It's, it's going to rely on the people that are already tried and true and have already uh, the well-established. Uh, it's going to be really tough to innovate anything new for quite a while then. Yeah. And, and I don't think that, I mean, yes, we saw what great white did recently where they had a, <laughs> You know, where they had a non-social distance concert, I think it was oh. in South Dakota. And it's like, because you didn't kill enough people in Rhode Island, you needed to have a social distance, you know, a non-socially distanced concert in South Dakota. I don't oh. think that there are that many artists that are that irresponsible, honestly. Uh, Smash Mouth, they found, they, they found their audience. It's Smash Mouth. I know. <laughs> I know. No, no complete disrespect. Was asking about you guys have some. You guys have one great hit, but uh, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't risk my life to see Smash. Yeah, seriously. You know. Uh, yeah. See, I, I've said this a few times already on the podcast. I, I am in the. I have both mindsets. I want more than anything in the world everybody to get back to work, and I want to. I, I would do anything to go to a concert right now. But at the same time, I, I won't. I don't want to see people doing it irresponsibly. I don't want to see people rushing the stage because that's what happens. People Exactly, exactly. You know, I I want to see I want to see more of the ones I, like I saw in the UK where everybody has their own little VIP booth and they stay in there. Yes. Yeah. And that's a form of engineering controls, honestly. Yeah. Those are the, those are the questions, those are the logistics that we have to vi- be very real about. Yes. And we have to figure out a way to make that a thing because you and I are, I consider both of us fairly intellectual, uh, intelligent, compassionate human beings. But after a couple drinks and my favorite band, I might throw caution to the wind. You know, that's, that's something that we have to be aware of as administrators and event producers. Yeah, that's absolutely true. 
was the human element that we're like, we're going to forget or, or we're going to, we're going to forget to even care. Yeah. At yeah. At, at a certain level, it's, it's, it won't matter what the rules are. You're just going to feel so inspired by it. You know, you're going to feel so into it that you can't help yourself. And, yeah. and that's, and that's exactly the feeling that they're all trying to inspire. And, you know, normally it's, <laughs> normally it's great that you're inspiring that feeling in your audience, you know, where they can't help, but just let you know how much they, they care about your, about, about the song you're singing. Oh, that's true. That's exactly, that's how, you know, it's a good concert is when people throw caution to the wind and they, they're dancing, like they, like they don't care. They're you think, about those, you think about those, those, those artists who have this ability that I don't, even, I'm not even sure what it is, who, where they, they can reach out to the back of a room to people in the last row of the balcony and uh-huh. they can bring them right up front with them. I don't know even what that skill is, but the ones who have it, yep. maybe they're the most dangerous ones at this time. <laughs> <laughs> whatever, that's, whatever that magical skill is, can you just leave it home? <laughs> just, just another month or two or three or until, until yeah, just... Can you present a show with just ninety percent less that magic? <laughs> oh man, yeah, that's uh, I I was gut I was I was gut wrenched to see uh, Stevie Nicks recently. She came out. And she's like, "You guys, please wear a mask because if you don't, if I get this, I never perform for you again." Yeah, and she is one of those people. She's one of those ones. She she can with her voice and her her steviness. She can reach out to the farthest person, uh, you know, hundred yards away, and say, "Like I'm here in this room with you right now, and we're connected." But but, but stay six feet away and, yeah, and wash yeah, your fucking exactly. hands. Yeah. yeah. But I do have confidence that you know that the the, you know, the organizations that that we other you know, were members of that were you know that that IATSE, that Equity that um, that ESTA they all want, they all want to make this happen. They all want to help make this happen. You know, none of them are standing back and going, well, it'll sort itself out, you know, or even like the major players on the producing side. I mean, you know, you know, live nation doesn't want to stay in this condition and they don't want to endanger anyone. Uh huh. You know, that everyone's trying to find a way to make this happen. Uh huh. So, and trying to make it find a way to make it happen safely. So, you know, I have, I have confidence that if there's a way to do it, that we'll find out what it is. Yeah. I think it's trial and error, unfortunately. Uh, hopefully we've learned from the smash mouths and the great whites of how, how not to do it. Uh, I, I, you know, I hope so. You know, I, you know, I talked about some of the you know things that we learned about in OSHA class. It's um, that I think, I think also having those minimum safety training standards going forward is going to be important. You know, oh, you know, yeah. you know that I'm also an ETCP card holder. Um, yes. And I'm OSHA 30, and I just signed up for OSHA 10 General Entertainment Safety. Uh, that's gonna that's a class I'm doing, I think, in October. Okay. Um, the the more we all know, the more we all understand. I mean, I, I would say one of the good things about ETCP is that it, you know, it 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 shows that the card holder doesn't just know what they know why and how. And the more we know why and how, in addition to, it's, it's, it's going to be, you know, like I would say having taken OSHA 10 and then taken OSHA 30, um, I mean, OSHA 10 construction, um, that OSHA 10 teaches you what and OSHA 30 teaches you why. Yes. And 
I think that's going to be even more important going forward. You know, comprehending the, that, comprehending why you need to do certain things. You know, wh- why is it important to fill in the blank? Uh-huh. And the more people understand that, the more people know that, the better off we're all going to be. And the more chances we have of compliance with respect to those safety, safety standards, the more people understand why. I, I feel like we go in these cycles where we all agree to abide by all safety standards and then things go according to plan. Everything is safe because we're all sticking to those plans. And then as things get, as things stay status quo, they're like, well, we can start lowering the standards and then things happen again. And that's the more things go right, the, the more complacent we get. You're right. If we look at that a couple of years ago, we had that spate of stage collapses. Right. And then that, you know, that, that's, I, mean, I got people like me saying, hey, do you want there to be a Senate subcommittee on stage safety? Because there's going to be. And right. people got, people, you know, got over it and they figured it out and that stopped happening. But yeah, so that engenders complacency. And, um, you know, I think as leaders are one of the most key parts we have to play is to follow the rules ourselves, do it happily, not be grouchy about it. You know, so, you know, so you're a programmer. Do you need to wear the high vis? Do you need to wear the hard hat? Maybe you don't. I mean, you know what? I've, I've certainly gotten used to not having to wear those things from sitting behind a desk, but mm-hmm. do it, do it, do it, do it happily. Show that you're doing it, show that you're happy to do it. You yeah. know, when, when the more experienced members of the, of, of the crew are, you know, instead of trying to find ways around having to do these things, joyfully taking part, that will encourage people with less experience to, to say, yeah, I'll do that too. I'll do that too. I'll do that. I'll do that too happily. Yeah. I, and the uh, amount of, the amount of times I've been standing on stage, you know, writing focus points or whatever, you know, not wearing hard salt, you know, not wearing steel toed shoes, not wearing a hard hat, you know, wearing like, you know, the Consperry Docksiders or something. You know, that's, I, I shouldn't be doing that. That's bad. And, you know, that, this is, and this is something that I've sort of realized finally that that's creating a bad impression. That's creating a bad, uh, that, that's, not, that's not creating a, an, a, a, an environment of safety. It's not creating a, a, a cycle of safety. That's right. Uh, and so that's, you know, that, that's one, one part that we definitely have to play is to totally do the things and do them happily. Yeah, it's a tough one. Every single person in in that safety cycle has a sense of exceptionalism. And I'm guilty of it myself. I'm like, well, I'm the programmer. I'm going to be way out front. I'm not going to be on stage under any motors. I don't need to do X. But then on stage, there's going to be, well, I'm the stage left uh, monitor guy. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be there when there's... Yeah, I'm not going to be underneath anything. I'm not going to be under anything while it's being hung. I don't need to do that. And next thing you know, now there's two people that aren't doing, they aren't wearing their high vis and their hat. And then they're like, it's only a, a matter of time. Well, well, he's not doing it. Yeah. Uh, he's well, not especially doing it. Especially because, yeah, they all, yeah you're, you're out front and you're programming. But at some point, you're going to have to run up on stage to check, you know, like, you know, that fixture isn't, isn't responding the way it should be. Is it, is it that it was hung backwards or is it that it's hanging up on something? I better just yeah. go up and see. You run up on stage and now you're another guy standing on stage with no hard hat, no high vis. Yeah. And then uh, the safety OSHA, 
uh, steward is off to the side. Like now I've got four people that I got to go. I got to go bark at them again. I yeah. just spent the whole day barking at people now. And then yeah. exactly. God, it's such a self-fulfilling cycle, you know, it's, and it all comes down from just being complacent because well, nobody's gotten hurt today. Yeah. So or no one's gotten hurt in however long, you know, I haven't seen anyone get hurt. You know, I've never seen anyone fall off a truss. I've never seen, I've never seen a chain bag spill, you know, with things like that. So when it comes to load ins and outs, it's clearly the responsibility doesn't necessarily lie on the individual. It, it lies on the production company. I mean, they're the ones to hold the, the certificates and the insurance. But when it comes to a show situation, who's... Well, I would say it's, it's everyone's responsibility during load-in. You know, yes, it's the production company's responsibility to hold their people to account, but it's yes. also the, the individual's responsibility to be part of something bigger than themselves, to be part of wanting the business to, to you know, to, not to, to, to be, uh, that they want to be part of not just this one production doing well, but a part of this, this business being safe. And, right. you know, as you get in, I, I mean, I, I don't actually see the difference between a load in and the show. Cause I mean, the, the, you know, there's still, there's still a producer or a production shop who's in charge of some level of that. You know, even if it's, even if everyone, everyone's working for the theater, you know, right. they're still working for someone who um, should be telling them to do that, but also they should be telling themselves to do that because they want right. the, they want this production to do well. They want this production to be safe. They want this business to do well. They want this business to be safe. Yeah, I guess it's up to all of us to encourage individual responsibility. That is the, the ultimate goal there. There's obviously a blanket amount of collective responsibility that's, that's held, but well, yes, it's the up to all of us to encourage. is ultimately on the, on the side of the employer, right. but the call to action is to the individual. Yes. And that is that falls on all of us to encourage each other and ourselves to be more more aware and more safe. I love the idea of OSHA thirty because it it's a it's a thirty hours of devoting to placing safety awareness and making people like oh and thinking things that maybe they hadn't thought of before. But I also think that it's more important to do it. 10 minutes of each day as opposed to 30 hours in a stint. Uh, I guess what I'm saying is with 30 hours, that's great, but I wish it extended past the 30 hours in other ways. If every job site, you know, if we weren't all freelancers, if every job site did that every day for 10 minutes, I could see what you mean. Yeah, you're right. But, you know, part of the reason that the whole concept was created was because construction workers work for many different construction companies and yep. they need basic, basic level of information. And so that's where that came from. And so this way you can be guaranteed everyone take a stepping foot onto a construction site has this information. And I'll say, you know, the 30 hour thing yeah. as much. Yeah, I don't know that all of it was applicable, but all of it gave me from, gave me food for thought. Yeah. You yeah. know, I haven't done productions involving cranes personally, but I do know that many people do. Um, there were some concepts with respect to electricity they had, that I hadn't thought about. I mean, if you think about it in, in construction, you have two choices. Either you're, everything is on a GFCI or you're running a, uh, a short equipment grounding program. And uh -huh. 
should we be running a chart equipment grinding program so we're not going to run everything on GFCIs? I can make yeah. the case that maybe we should be. Yeah. No, these are all things that uh, would be outside of your scope if you hadn't brought it in uh, through a, a set of standardized tools. Yeah, le learning that they have that standard for, you know, if you're running a cable from a source of power to a device that you're using, that cable has to be either GFCI or be assured to be grounded. And that means an inspection every, I can't remember how many months, if it's three or six, but you know, it's, it's essentially to encourage everyone to use GFCI everything. Right. Um, in cases where you can't, then you have to figure out, then you, then you have to do the inspections. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I, that's not something that would, would have even occurred to me. Okay. So moving forward, when it comes time that, uh, let's say, a, uh, a pill or a vaccination becomes a necessary part of safety protocol, how do we go about monitoring and enforcing that? I don't know. I in, in you know in a in a sane world, I think that the moment a vaccine is available, that I'd want to be first in line. But yeah. I would hope that literally every other human I on you know in my area would be right behind me. One would hope. Uh, I don't know how you go ahead and enforce compliance. Um, with, I don't. With an OSHA thirty, you just have a card. Yes. I don't know if I don't know if I would apply the same logic to a, a vaccination. I, I guess you would have to. I mean, that's what I do with my kids when they go well, to school. Well, in, in, their in the case of employers, yes. In the case of audience, whole different story. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. Employers, that's a it's a Again, good deal. You can say, you yeah, know, yeah, I'm not going to hire you if you don't have uh, your OSHA 30 card. You could apply that equally to a vaccination or a. In a controlled environment, you yeah. can do that. You know, I mean, there was just the, the, the Frozen just loaded out on Broadway, I think, last week, the week before. I don't, I don't know, but, it, you know, that there were all sorts of controls put in to make sure that everyone was being as safe as possible with, with, with respect to the virus. But they weren't having an audience. You can't, uh, you can't, right, right back to what we discussed, you can't, you don't have the same leverage there. Right. You, you can't say you can't come to our show unless if you don't vaccinate you well, know can you? That's... question mark i don't know ah, would you want to additional considering the question mark exclamation point <laughs> is it profitable to do that are you going to alienate enough people are you violating any human rights so yeah that's that's a it's a little bit above my scope there i, I mean you know the same way you can't attend university if you haven't received your full set of vaccinations yeah. You can't go to certain countries if you don't have right. your malaria vaccination. I, I, right. and I don't see that as a human rights solution. He's like, no, no, if you're going to the Congo, you need to have a malaria vaccination. Yeah, there's no question. There's no discussion. Yeah. You, no, have, I guess the, you, 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 you have the right to, you know, let your airline ticket, you know, rot and not, you know, not, and, and go unused. Man, I would. Uh, it would be tough to see uh, the billboard for Holla if you can hear me with the uh, must be vaccinated, you know, yeah. asterisks. It's funny uh, that you brought that up. And conditions. Because I recall us talking about that the last time we podcasted. Yeah, I absolutely remember that one. I was really excited to talk to somebody about that show. I loved that <laughs> show. I, uh, I, I think I was one of the 
hundreds of people that went to see yeah, <laughs> they really, yeah seriously really enjoyed it. yeah man but but hey it's it's it was good to see that chris jackson went on to do something so gigantic after that <laughs> you know that we you know i i definitely loved working on holler if you hear me um uh, mike belvisari was a lighting designer on that and it was it was a, it was an amazing show to be part of but mm-hmm. then you know to see it close the way it did it was heartbreaking but you know christian action went right on to hamilton and you know that worked great for him and mm-hmm. if you know perhaps potentially had he been on holler for the full year he might not, not he wouldn't have he might not have ended up on the workshop for hamilton and then somebody else would be george washington now <laughs> so you know ah uh, the little things it's all the little things all the little speculations Man, yeah, I do. I did enjoy that. Uh, I think it was ahead of its time. I think a uh, a Tupac Shakur Broadway show was just a little bit ahead of its time. I, I it was a great. I loved it. I, I I told my my wife about how much I enjoyed it, and then I was really happy to get to talk to you about it too. Yeah. And those were the to- those were in in grand total the two people I got to talk to about it. I uh, I brought it up several times, and it was like, yeah, I never heard of it. Ugh. They, the, the, they, the, there were there were things that potentially could have been done. There were, I, I don't, I don't want to go into the whys and wherefores of like you know yeah. my opinions about it, especially all these years later. Um, you know, uh, the, the director Kenny Leon has gone on to do great things, and in fact, he went on to direct um, Children of a Lesser God, a Studio Fifty Four, and uh, which I programmed, um, I think, in twenty eighteen with when Mike was the LD on on that. Uh, so every, everyone's had fruitful things happen since then, but yeah, it's uh, yeah. All, all of us who were there. It's it, it remains a real, a real bright thing that we did, and it's it's funny that there's so few people we can share that with. Yeah. So we are almost out of time, and I think we've only pre- came up with more questions than answers. I don't think we've actually solved anything here. Oh, but, I'm sorry. Uh, I don't know if that's. Uh, I, I don't know if we're actually seeking answers. I don't know if that's why we, we come for these things. But uh, I do want to end with, uh, with uh, one more question that I think yes, is interesting. And I think you might be able to have a, an interesting take on this one. When it comes time to implement these, these very heavy-handed uh, safety restrictions, I don't think that uh, local or state governments are in a place to mandate them with any sort of efficacy do you think that unions or osha are in a better place to to mandate or to even you know really truly enforce some heavy-handed safety restrictions that's a that's a good question i I, you know i I, for, for for unionized productions i think it's going to end up being the unions themselves that that say what needs to be done, and then it's going to be up to, uh, let's say, a compliance officer. You know, this is going to. I think it's going to have to be a new position, or potentially even a new department for a oh, production wow. of a production of a large enough size. You know, if you think about working on a feature, you know, where you have hundreds and hundreds of people all working on the same project together, uh-huh. it's not going to be one compliance officer. That's not going to no. be enough. No, you're right. So I think it's going to be, you know, in some cases, it's going to be an entire compliance department and that their job is going to be making sure that all the standards from all the trades are being followed. 
for non-union things, you know, one, I think it's going to help a lot to have uh, union guidelines. And so that way people can, you know, even if they're not uh, organized, they can say, well, these are the guidelines we're going to follow because they seem to be working. Uh-huh. And that's, you know, it's one of the benefits of unions that, you know, that, that e- even if you're not a member of one, the, the rules they create can help create a framework for other people to work under. Um, you know, there's a decent number of, uh, you know, non-union production uh, or uh, production in New York that uh, follows rules that are very similar to union rules with respect to minimums and uh, uh, with respect to um, uh, penalties and things like that. Okay. Um, OSHA, it's it's a good question. I, um, I don't know if they have been involved in specifically medical related right. uh, guidelines like this in the past. I do think ultimately whatever standards there are are going to be have are going to have to be um, enforced by some kind of safety officer though or safety to, or something like that that that's it going might, to be something yeah. that we're going to see going forward we're going to see those we're going to be talking with those it's, you know the same way you have uh you know a technical director whose job it is to make sure that everyone's working safely on you know let's say a regional stage you know that's mm-hmm. a lot of times what they're doing over there or you have a a medical safety officer uh, you know i've often seen medical and entire medical teams working on events you know that you know who are there to provide uh, guidance and um, uh, safety compliance, right? Yeah, and know, I, to, I would to, to say, that. hey, the, that guy is up in that lift. He's not wearing a harness. Bring him down. Get him in. Get get him in harness. And that cost for that safety officer is going to be on the production, and that's going to have to go to the audience, and then the audience are going to end up paying even more for an already expensive ticket. Well, yeah, but the, let's be realistic about how much money that really is. You know, spread out yeah, across an entire audience. Of course. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is like, you know, the Papa John's guy saying, oh, well, pizzas will cost more if we have to give people health care. And it's, yeah, they're going to cost 10 cents more per pizza. I'm happy to pay, what, 10, 12 cents more per pizza so that way people can, yeah. you know, have health care. Yeah. On this podcast, all the mailers are, screw that guy. Pay your people a, a living wage. That's, that's how you make good pizza. Yeah. Yeah. No, man, I, I live in Canada now, and a $15 minimum wage is not unobtainable. If anybody's trying to tell you that a $15 minimum wage is, uh, is going to is gonna hurt people, they're lying. They're exactly. absolutely lying to you. They, they, they only want to keep you paying, making less because it benefits them. They don't exactly about you. $15 minimum wages is not, yeah. And that's why that's why unions are so important. If, even if people are working in non-union gigs, it's only because the union is in that town that the the precautions and the the wages and the the bar is set thanks right. to the unions. The bar is set exactly. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. So, and then people know that there's oh the, well there are things we should be doing. There are things that we can be doing. Yeah. Yeah. The, and it all it takes is one person say hey the union's doing it. If why can't you? Yeah. And uh, that's that's enough of an incentive. People like, oh shit! If we don't do that, then the union's going to come in, and then we're going to have to fight. And then I don't want to go too much of that. Well, no, it's it, it, funny you mentioned that. And a lot of people are, are afraid of like, oh, that we're going to have to go union. And it's like, well, it doesn't necessarily change anything. I mean, you know, and yeah, it, it you know it, it changes the alloc- certain allocations of money. It changes certain other things. But I mean, 
you know, ultimately it's, you know, a friend of mine has a drinking company who actually was actually going to be on my podcast soon. Um, and he, uh, you know, he has, he just has a separate division of the company that, that, that runs the union contract stuff. And it was, it wasn't really difficult and it didn't really change his own cause because he was already providing healthcare for his, for his guys. So it just, it changed. So rather than him paying directly for that healthcare, he was paying into the union fund and the union was providing them healthcare. That is, I think that's the way it should be. Especially in a freelance business. It's certainly a lot easier to have a, you know, separate worker, uh, yeah. you know, a, 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 a separate worker body that, that the employers just pay into because if you're going to employ someone for five days a year and then that person's going to work for 27 other people that year, it's, it's, it's just, it, it's, it's, it's administratively, it's more easy. It, it's easier to just say, you know, pay them whatever the percentage is. And then the separate organization actually provides the <clears throat> healthcare and uh, benefits and retirement for that person. Right. We are totally getting into new, we're going to have to do an extended <laughs> version of this one. We're, we will either have to, I'll have to come and do a casting light podcast and to continue this, or we'll have to do this again. Cause uh, I feel like you yeah, and I I'd could go into, uh, into another hour of this one. I'd love to have you back. Absolutely. Now that the podcast is back on the air. Wonderful. Uh, if anybody wants to go listen to more of Jason, they can go to castinglightpodcast.com or you can also find out more of him at Instagram, uh, podcasting, podcasting light. Yes. Did I get that right? Did I get both of those right? Podcasting Light, yes. That is the place to be on Instagram. Uh, and, of course, the podcast is available on iTunes and all those usual places you find podcasts. I'm, I'm an Apple person, so I don't know about Same. any of the other things. But I'm sure you, uh, But uh, Google tells me that it's on Google Podcasts. So you can find it there. Spotify, too. all those things. It's amazing how far podcasts are going these days. Thank you so much, Jason. I appreciate this uh, a wonderful hour. I, uh, I always appreciate it and I look forward to doing it again. Thank you very much, Chris. 